welcome to the Strand Baptist Church podcast. For more information on Strand Baptist Church and our ministries, please visit our website at www.strandbaptist.org.za. Good morning, Strand Baptist family. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I have to say that I am grateful for the opportunity to share God's word with you, even though we cannot gather. And yet, I'll add, I pray that we would be able to gather again soon. We want to see our worship hall filled with people who are there to remind one another of those two great commandments the first being obviously to love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind this our lord jesus said is the first and greatest commandment but also to stir one another up to fulfill the second commandment which is to love your neighbor as yourself we want to see the lord honored in corporate worship um, but in the meantime uh, this is a means through which we can still minister to one another so i want to do something different this morning i want to invite you into our decision making discussion process as the elders and the deacons uh, try to chart a course for the way forward um, as we try to navigate very difficult um, difficult waters and some of this will be familiar to you if you've read through the letter but i wanted to expand upon what we said in the letter, there's only so much that you can fit into three or four odd pages. And so I wanted to elaborate on that so that you can understand not only why we make the decisions that we do, but hopefully um, it instructs you, it helps you, it shapes your thinking a bit and enables you to think through and deal with these things in a, in a Christ-honoring way. So before we do that, let's just turn to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, I Humbly ask for your, your aid, for the aid of your Holy Spirit, for your Holy Spirit, Lord, to enable me to understand your word and to communicate it clearly, faithfully, without any distortion on my part, so that your people would hear your voice, not mine. I pray, Lord, that you would enable your church to hear your voice. You said that you are the good shepherd and that your sheep recognize your voice. And I pray that they would do so. And whatever is from God, may that lead them, guide them, encourage them and strengthen them. Whatever is from man, may that just fall away. But Lord, we pray um, by your Holy Spirit and through your word, bless your people, lift up your name and help us to lift up your name to a watch, in front of a watching world, uh, to bring you glory and honor in everything we do, especially in how we respond to this pandemic. This we pray in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. Now we mentioned in the letter that this has not been a, a, an easy season in the life of the South African church. A sudden rise in infections has led to hospitals being overwhelmed, churches being closed, and obviously, tragically, lives being lost. Some of our own friends, family members, church members, have succumbed to this disease. 
Government's return to lockdown level three has sparked much discussion about what the church's response should be. And we recognize there's a great deal of confusion and frustration. When we look at the regulations and the way in which they are implemented, they seem arbitrary, contradictory, and we realize that they place disproportionate burdens on certain citizens and institutions. So how should we as a church respond? Well, there have been varying calls for disobedience, civil disobedience, or for compliance. Some churches have decided to open in spite of lockdown restrictions, and others have decided to remain closed. Now, we recognize that there are differing views within our wider Baptist community, and there are probably differing views within our own church. So regardless of what the elders and the deacons decided um, in this, we know that our decision would have left some frustrated. But again, this is not the basis upon which we make such decisions. Our goal should never be to appease the most people, but to honor and obey the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. Colossians chapter 1 verse 18. So I want to lay down a few foundational principles and hopefully um, help you navigate your way through these difficult discussions and decisions. And the first principle I want to start with is the Lordship of Christ. The Lordship of Christ. Christians in general and Baptists in particular believe in the Lordship of Christ. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 explains that being a believer means to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. To confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Our statement of Baptist principles echoes this. It explains that we believe in the direct lordship of Christ over every believer and every local church. By this we understand that Christ exercises his authority over the believer and the local church directly without delegating it to another. Now, let's just uh, explore this a bit. Let's start at the beginning. What does lordship mean? Well, confessing Jesus Christ as Lord means that we owe Him our total allegiance, loving service, and faithful obedience. It basically means Jesus is the boss. And there's no other way to follow Jesus. The Apostle Peter often spoke of Jesus as both Lord and Savior on four different occasions just in his second letter. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 11, chapter 2 verse 20, chapter 3 verse 2, and chapter 3 verse 18. You see, as far as the Apostle Peter was concerned, these were not two separate or, com or competing aspects of Jesus' work. They're one and the same. And so receiving Jesus as Savior also means submitting, him, submitting to Him as Lord, you could not have one without the other. But this leads us to the next question. Why is Jesus Lord? Well, Jesus is Lord because of his person and because of his work. In his person, Jesus is Lord because he's the Son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. Psalm 103 verse 19 reminds us, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Jesus is God, and therefore, He is Lord. But Jesus is also Lord because of His work. So it's not only His person, but also His work. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 to 23, we are reminded that God the Father raised Christ, and I quote, from the dead. 
and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the whole point of that passage is that because Jesus has achieved the final victory over sin and death through his resurrection and ascension, he is rightly Lord. So because Jesus is God and because he has triumphed over sin and death, he is Lord. But what's he Lord of? Or to put it another way, what's the extent of his Lordship? Now we've already seen just from our Baptist principles that Jesus is Lord of every individual believer, but his Lordship is not limited to the individual. For example, the Bible teaches that Jesus is Lord over all creation. In that famous passage in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 to 11, we read, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This means that there is nothing in all of creation that is outside of His rule. He is Lord over all. Specifically, He's also Lord over every human institution. In Romans chapter 13, verse 1, we find that he's Lord over government institutions. For example, it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authority, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So he's Lord over all creation, he's Lord over every human institution, and then obviously he's Lord over the church. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So what this means is that in every sphere of life, our goal as believers is to honor Jesus Christ as Lord. And the words of Revelation chapter 5 verse 12, He worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. The whole world needs to offer him, must offer him, this kind of praise. Now, throughout history, Christians have suffered because of this conviction. The early church suffered because they confessed Jesus as Lord and not Caesar. And early Baptists suffered because they would not allow government authorities to dictate their church's beliefs or practices. They disobeyed government and were then imprisoned for it because they believed in the Lordship of Christ. The question now is, should we, with the current restrictions on religious gatherings, do the same? Now that brings us to the second principle. Governing authorities instituted by God. So we've seen the Lordship of Christ, but now we move to governing authorities instituted by God. What should our attitude to civil authorities be? There are two important passages that explain what our attitude towards civil authorities should be. The first is Romans 13 verse 1 to 7. And the second is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 to 17. Now let's start with Romans chapter 13. And for our purposes, we'll just focus on the first five verses. It reads as follows. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of, um, 
of the one who is in authority, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now what we see in this passage is that believers should, firstly, be subject to governing authorities. It's there in the, te in the text, verse 1 of Romans chapter 13. But there's an important reason for this. Um, the reason is this, for there is no authority except from God, and those that, ha th those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, why did God institute government? The passage continues by stating that government is God's servant for your good. And is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So God instituted civil authority to bring, in ideal circumstances, peace and order to society. Elsewhere we are told that, in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 14, that government is there to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So again, government therefore has a God-given duty to promote public order and peace, while also punishing evil. But this does not mean that they have ultimate authority or that they have uh, uh, unqualified authority. Francis Schaeffer writes the following. He says, God has ordained the state as a delegated authority. It is not autonomous. The state is to be an agent of justice, to restrain evil by punishing the wrongdoer and to protect the good of society. So as believers, we are called to submit to governing authorities as Romans chapter 13 verse 5 says, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So Christian submission to government is a matter of obedience to God. Incidentally, unbelievers don't have the same kind of motivation. An unbeliever submits because of threats or promises. They either submit because they fear what the state will do to them if they don't submit, or they submit because they think that they will get something from the state if they do. The believer does not look first to the state but to God and finds our reason to submit first and foremost in God's own uh, 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 command. So how does government's role differs, differ from that of the church? This is important. Government and church are not the same and they should not be confused. Foundationally, the Foundationally, the church has been called to glorify God by being and making disciples. Now, we believe that the church has been called to spread the gospel. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. So we've been called to spread the gospel. And we spread the gospel with this goal, Matthew chapter 28 verse 19 to 20, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. And we're also, we've also been called to minister in Christ's name. We'll see more about that later in Matthew chapter 25. But for the time being, let's just sum it up like this. We've been called to be salt and light in the world, to be a blessing to society. Now, when government and the church fulfill their roles well, it leads to harmony and blessing. And this is a universal good. And we're commanded to pray for it. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. We want to serve the Lord in peace. But what happens when government oversteps or interferes in the life of the church? Now, this brings us to the third 
principle or point I want to make this morning. So there's the Lordship of Christ, government as instituted by God, and then third, the importance of the gathered church. The importance of the gathered church. Now, if you've been listening to the conversation, you would have heard Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 come up quite a lot. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 reminds us just how important church is. In our hyper-individualized society, we need to be reminded of that again and again because the corporate church gathering has had to take a back seat to personal preference and convenience. We find that people prefer to stay at home and listen to the sermon online and not be bothered by other people, particularly other believers. They want to privatize their religion. And while we walk with the Lord as individual Christians, Christianity has never been a private thing. It's always been a community thing. So how important is the gathering of the local church? Well, it's vital. It's vital to the spiritual health of the believer, and it's vital to the church's ministry in the world. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, we read the following. We should not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, what does this mean? Now, to understand the verse, we need to read it in its context. Context is king. So Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 is part of one long sentence in the original Greek that starts way back in verse 19. Now, look at it carefully with me. When you look at this one long sentence from verse 19 to verse 25, if you have your Bible with you, please open there because this is important. I want to help you understand what this means. In Hebrews chapter 10, Verse 19, we see, verse 19 to verse 21, we see that he's going to give them commands, but it's rooted in the gospel. Listen to what he says. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, now let's just stop there for a moment. In other words, he goes back to the gospel and what the Lord Jesus Christ has achieved through his death and resurrection. He reminds them again that Jesus Christ is their great high priest who offered himself as a sacrifice for their sins. And in doing so, has gained them access to the Father. Now because of these gospel truths, he goes on to three admonitions or three commands if you will. And each of these commands are introduced by the phrase, let us. Look at verse 22, let us. Verse 23, let us. And then verse 24, let us. And the commands are as follows. Let us draw near, verse 22. Let us hold fast, verse 23. And let us consider, verse 24. Each of these are phrased in such a way that the author calls himself and his readers to common action. It's almost like a first person imperative. It's rallying the troops. It's getting everyone together and encouraging them to join you in something. Come on, men, let's go. And that's the idea here. Is the author of Hebrews says, this is what we should be doing together. And he says, let us, two things, firstly, in our relationship with God, vertically. 
two things firstly in our relationship with God. The first two admonitions, while corporate in nature, we do them together, are focused on our relationship with God. Let us draw near to God. That's the first one in verse uh, 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Why? Because we have access to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. So let us draw near. Don't hold back. Don't stay away. Approach your Father in faith. But verse 23 as well uh, then adds, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. In other words, let's hold on to this faith that we claim in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's hold on to his precious promises. Let's hold on to the hope that these promises inspire. We know that God has not only been good to us at the cross of Christ, he's promised to be good to us in the future as well. Those two have direct bearing on our relationship with God. We do them together, but they're focused on our relationship with God. But the third one, we see, takes on another element. Now it turns to our horizontal relationship with our fellow believers. When you draw near to God and when you hold on to this confession, it necessarily then leads to verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. In other words, your relationship with God has an effect, overflows into your relationship with your fellow believers. That's why it's so perplexing when you find Christians who don't have time for the church, who don't have time for other believers. Uh, Your relationship with God, the Father, does not isolate you from the church, but draws you to them and enables you to minister to them. And so verse 24 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And verse 25 then flows out of this command, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. So what does verse 24 call us to? This third admonition calls us to very careful consideration to how we can stir up or inspire or encourage our fellow believers to fulfill the Lord's command to love our neighbor and to do good works. And the author of Hebrews then adds, not neglecting to meet together, he gives us the context within which this third admonition is to be obeyed. The love and good works that are called for in verse 24, they are the products of fellowship within the body of Christ. In other words, we cannot fulfill these commands in isolation there's no such thing as a lone ranger christian one commentator hughes explains it like this the failure to love shows itself then in selfish individualism and specifically here in the habit of some of neglecting to meet together such unconcern for one's fellow believers argues unconcern for christ himself and portends the danger of apostasy now listen to what he's saying He's saying that when we are unconcerned for our fellow believers within the church and we have no interest in encouraging them to remain steadfast in the love and service of the Lord, then we probably don't care much about our Lord. If we don't care much about the people of Christ, we probably don't care much for the Christ of the people. And that means we're probably in danger of apostasy, falling away from the faith altogether. Your faith may very well be dead. Another commentator, Lane, adds the following. He says, Whatever the motivation, 
the writer regarded the desertion of the communal meetings as utterly serious. It threatened the corporate life of the congregation and almost certainly was a prelude to apostasy on the part of those who were seeking to separate themselves from the assembly. This is why lockdown restrictions are so concerning to me as a pastor. Uh, it has been my experience in the past that when uh, people start drifting in their faith, uh, when people start giving in to sin or entertaining temptation, one of the first steps they take, one of the first signs of danger is that they withdraw from the church. And that's basically what Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 is getting at. Without the encouragement of the local church, the Hebrew believers were in danger of apathy, meaning not taking God's command seriously, or worse, apostasy, abandoning the faith altogether. Now we get to the fourth point I want to make, neglecting the gathered church. So Hebrews chapter 10 then says, verse 25, that we should not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. Are we guilty of neglecting the gathered church when we don't have services? Well, let's look at what he says. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 uses a term that implies willful neglect or abandonment. It's the same word that Jesus used on the cross when he cried out in Matthew chapter 27 verse 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Apostle Paul also used the same word to describe Demas deserting him. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. You see, some Hebrew believers were turning their back on the gathered church because of persecution. This was a deliberate decision. And this weakened their already weak faith even further. Again, we need the gathered church. So forsaking the assembly, first and foremost, is an attitude of the heart. Before it leads to an action, it's an attitude of the heart. Do you have a concern for the church? Do you have a sincere love for your fellow believers? Do you long to see them? Do you want to minister to them? Do you want to be ministered to by them? It's, it's one of those uh, tricky questions because uh, we often shy away from other believers. We don't want to let them close, particularly when we're either cherishing a, a, a sin that we don't want to let go or we're wrestling with temptation and we're too ashamed to admit it or we've just lost our first love and we're not really that interested and so you've got to ask yourself this question in your heart have you forsaken have you neglected have you turned your back on the church if you have it might be a sign that you're in very real spiritual danger and you need to repent. But what if we cannot gather? What if I have a sincere desire to gather with God's people, but we can't? We don't have services. Well, this is clearly different from the example above um, that, I, that I just mentioned. There have been occasions where God's people could not gather for worship. The sons of Korah wanted to worship God in his sanctuary, but they could not because of their oppressors. You can read about that in Psalm 42 verse 1 to 4. David also, when he was hiding in the wilderness of Judea, running away from Saul, he said, Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. That's Psalm 63, verse 1 to 3. 
So David and the sons of Korah had a sincere desire to worship God in the throng, in the multitude, in the temple. But they couldn't because of circumstances. So they were overjoyed and David was overjoyed when they said to him, let us go to the house of the Lord. Psalm 122 verse 1. As New Testament believers, we understand God's presence is not limited to the temple or even to the church building, please. We worship God in spirit and in truth, says John chapter 4, verse 23. But we recognize that gathering as believers is an integral part of being a Christian. Think about the Apostle Paul. He longed to see his fellow believers, Romans chapter 1, verse 11. And he yearned for them with the affection of Christ, Philippians chapter 1, verse 8. I, I've, I've seen this, I've heard this. As I've spoken to some of our members over the phone and, and when we talk, there, there's always this, this expression, this sincere desire. I, I want to be there. I want to be there. I miss my brothers and sisters in Christ. I miss the church. We've cried tears over the phone together because of this. Is that your desire? Is that how you feel about the gathered church? Or do you have the sense of apathy? Or indifference. When we cannot gather, we miss out on a vital part of Christian life and ministry. That's true. And that's why these restrictions are so difficult to bear. God's commanded us to gather. We feel the need to gather. And so when we can't, um, it, hits, it hits hard. And yet for some, and this is a great concern for me just pastorally, for some, it's, it's had no effect at all. Uh, you don't feel that sense of longing. You don't feel like you're missing anything. In fact, you think this is pretty great. That's, that's a dangerous sign. That's a dangerous sign. And it might be that you are neglecting the gathered church. You were neglecting the gathered church even when we could gather. And that's a sin. And you need to repent of that for your own spiritual health. Now, what should we do when government says we can't gather? Well, this brings us to the fifth point I want to make. To gather or not to gather. The current restrictions on gatherings of the church have been instituted, we are told, to curb the spread of COVID-19. And we know since the new strain uh, appeared in late October, cases have been increasing steadily and they hit a, a, a new peak in the weeks leading up to Christmas. And so we knew we would return to stricter lockdown regulations, but admittedly, we did not expect them to close churches again. We complied with the initial two weeks, but then uh, calls for civil disobedience started to grow. Should we continue to comply? Well, many have pointed out that government has overstepped their jurisdiction. Now, as we've mentioned before, the government and the church are two different entities with different responsibilities. And again, our statement on Baptist principles is helpful here. You can find it in our constitution. It's on our website as well. Uh, we affirm, we say, the principle of separation of church and state. In that, in the providence of God, the two differ in their respective natures and functions. The church is not to be identified with the state, nor is it in its faith and practice, to be directed or controlled by the state. The state is responsible for administering justice, ensuring an orderly community, and promoting the welfare of its citizens. The church is responsible for preaching the gospel 
and for demonstrating and making known God's will and care for all mankind. Now that seems simple enough until we encounter those situations where the jurisdiction of the state and the jurisdiction of the church seem to overlap. The state has a legitimate concern to preserve human life and to protect, protect its citizens. So can the government close churches when it tries to do so? Well, we're not the first Christians to wrestle with this. Richard Baxter, a 17th century pastor, wrestled with exactly the same question. And in case you're wondering, he spent time in prison for refusing to preach what the government prescribed. So he understood that government had limited authority. But he also wrote the following. He asks the question, may we, may we omit church assemblies on the Lord's Day if the magistrate forbid them? In other words, can we leave or, or, or skip church if government says we're not allowed to meet? And he makes four points. He says, first, it is one thing to forbid them for a time upon some special cause as infection by pestilence, war, famine, and etc. And another to forbid them statedly and profanely. Two, it is one thing to omit them for a time and another to do it ordinarily. Three, it is one thing to omit them in formal obedience to the law and another thing to omit them in prudence or for necessity because we cannot keep them. And finally, the assembly and the circumstance of the assembly must be distinguished. So after making those points, he then concludes the following. If the magistrate, for the greater good, as the common safety, forbid church assemblies in a time of pestilence, assault of enemies, or fire, or the like necessity, it is a duty to obey him. And then he explains that uh, we do this because there is a positive duty to obey. We want to preserve life. Second, he explains that while ordinarily we would gather and we're commanded to gather, we recognize that there may be times and seasons where we can't gather. And we recognize this already. Um, our own constitution says that if someone is not at the church assembly for three months without uh, a good reason, then that person may be removed from membership, but we recognize that there may be a good reason. Three months is arbitrary, but the point is just there may be a good reason. Um, and finally, he says that uh, because one Lord's Day or assembly is not to be preferred before many, he writes, which by the omission of the one are like to be obtained. In other words, by missing a few, we may have everyone attend many. Now, one person who found Baxter's reasoning compelling was Francis Grimke a Presbyterian minister who served a church in Washington, D.C. in 1918 during the Spanish flu epidemic. And he wrote the following. Listen to this. Another thing that has impressed me in connection with this epidemic is the fact that conditions may arise in a community which justify the extraordinary exercise of powers that would not be tolerated under normal circumstances. This extraordinary exercise of power has resorted to um, was resorted to by the commissioners in closing up the theaters, schools, churches, in forbidding all gatherings of any considerable number of people indoors and outdoors, and in restricting the number who should be present even at funerals. Sounds familiar, right? The ground of the exercise of this extraordinary power was found in the imperative duty of the officials to safeguard as far as possible the health of the community by preventing the spread of the disease from which we are suffering. He then continues, 
There has been considerable grumbling, I know, on the part of some, particularly in regard to the closing of the churches. It seems to me, however, in a matter like this, it is always wise to submit to such restrictions for the time being. If, as a matter of fact, it was dangerous to meet in theatres and in schools, it certainly was no less dangerous to meet in churches. The fact that the churches were places of religious gathering, and the others not, would not affect in the least the health question involved. If avoiding crowds lessens the danger of being infected, it was wise to take the precaution and not needlessly run in danger and expect God to protect us. And then he concludes, And so, anxious as I have been to resume work, I have waited patiently until the order was lifted. I started to worry at first, as it seemed to upset all of our plans for, all, for the fall work. But I soon recovered my composure. I said to myself, why worry? God knows what he is doing. His work is not going to suffer. It will rather be a help, a help to it in the end. Out of it, I believe great good is coming. All the churches, as well as the community at large, are going to be stronger and better for this season of distress through which it ha we have been passing. End of quote. And so you read things like that, Richard Baxter and, and uh, Pastor Grimke, Francis Grimke. And, and we realize that we're not the first one to wrestle, uh, the first ones to wrestle through this. And so as elders, we came to the conclusion that for the time being, we would abide by these restrictions. But maybe you're unconvinced <laughs> and you're thinking, no, um, we still want to gather, we still want to meet. Well, again, church history is instructive. Samuel Rutherford was another 17th century pastor who was arrested for his book, Lex Rex, or you could translate it, The Law and the King. And in it, he explained that the law of God was the supreme authority, not the king. Now, you can imagine that the government of the day was not happy with that. The Parliament of Scotland met to condemn Samuel Rutherford to death for his views. And the only reason they did not execute him as a rebel is because he died before they could. In those cases where government oversteps the bounds of its authority or acts in a way that threatens the governing structure of society, Rutherford explains that Christians should resist. Um, that resistance, however, does not necessarily mean full rebellion. You see, we tend to go from zero to a hundred in our responses to most things, uh, particularly on social media. But he proposed three steps. First, protest. Second, flight. Third, fight. This means that if you disagree with decisions and the decisions that the government has made, you can protest. As elders, we fully support those attempts to use the channels that God has given us to petition government for the opening of churches. I am aware of at least two organizations that have launched legal action and of a couple of churches who have also launched legal action to force government to reopen churches and to declare lockdown restrictions on churches unconstitutional. Pray for those efforts. Pray that the Lord would be gracious to them and that the Lord would grant them favor in the eyes of the judge who presides over these cases. Um, we want to see religious liberty protected in South Africa, obviously. But that's where it starts. You don't just stir up a rebellion. You don't go from zero to 100 at first. Interestingly, Rutherford said that as long as you had the ability to flee from the oppression of government, you should not rise up and fight. And so even there, we find that a, a, a measure of wisdom and restraint 
is called for. Another pastoral concern we've had as elders is that suddenly a lot of people are very interested in attending church. <laughs> and it may be that this interest comes from people who previously were not as interested in attending church. And so you've got to ask yourself, is your interest in the church assembly, is your fervor for the gathering of the church motivated by sincere love for the Lord and for his people, or by your rebellious attitude toward the government? Um, I long to see the church gather as well, but not because I despise or detest or want to rebel against government. And I would encourage you to search your own heart. If the gathering of the church was not that important to you before, why would it be now? If this was not something that you were willing to wake up for on time before restrictions, why do you want to go to court for it now? If you did not plan your Saturday evening so that you would be fresh and awake to worship God on Sunday morning, why would you now spend a significant portion of your time, efforts, and maybe even money to fight for the church service? All I'm saying is, and all I want you to, to, to just search in your own heart and ask the Lord to search your heart about is, is your desire to gather as a church motivated by a sincere love for the Lord and His people or by the thrill of defying government? Because if that is what it is, it is sin. A good thing for the wrong reasons is wrong. Now, what should we be doing? I want to conclude with this. What should we be doing? While we wait for these court cases to resolve, while we wait for the church to be gathered together again, what should we be doing? Again, I want to turn to church history. In AD 249 to around AD 262, Western civilization was devastated by one of the deadliest pandemics in history. Um, though the exact numbers or cause of the plague is uncertain, the city of Rome was said to have lost an estimated 5,000 people a day at the height of the outbreak. One eyewitness, Bishop Dionysus of Alexandria, wrote that although the plague did not discriminate between Christians and non-Christians, its full impact fell on non-Christians. And then he writes about the difference between how Christians and non-Christians responded to the plague. I want to read what he wrote. Listen to this. At the first onset of the diseased, speaking of non-Christians, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. A century later, the Emperor Julian attempted to curb the growth of Christianity after the plague by leading a campaign to establish pagan charities that mirrored the work of Christians in this realm. In a letter that he wrote in AD 362, Julian complained that the Greeks needed to match the Christians in virtue. And he blamed the recent growth of Christianity on, and I quote, their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives. Well, what he called pretended holiness of their lives. 
Elsewhere he wrote, For it is a disgrace that the impious Galileans, those are the Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. In other words, Christians responded to the disease, and yes, even the threat of death, in a very different way. Because of the hope that we have in Christ, Christians were the most compassionate, caring, loving, kind people, even in the midst of a pandemic. Again, Dionysus uh, writes the following. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbor and cheerfully accepting their pains. We as Christians should never forget that we, know we not only live for the here and now. This is not our best life now. This is not as good as, as it gets. This world is not our home. Jesus gave us an interesting illustration of this and how it affects how we live. In Matthew 25, verse 34 to 40, Jesus said, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a strange and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So, Look for ways to serve Christ by serving your fellow believers, by serving those who are suffering, by coming to their aid. It might mean delivering groceries. It might mean giving them a phone call and praying for them. It might mean visiting them. It might mean taking someone into your home who has nowhere else to go. It might mean sacrificing certain luxuries so that you can use your means to care for another. However else the Lord may lead you, pray that God would give you insight, wisdom, that he would help you do the good works that he's called you to. If this message, this time together as God's people, even though it's over the internet, if this has achieved anything, I do pray that it would achieve this. That it would stir you up to love and good works. Because that is one of the reasons why we gather. God bless. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you again. Just pray for your aid, for your leading, for your guidance, for your compassion that you would make us instruments of mercy and that you would help us shine our light before the world, be salt and light, so that you might receive the glory. We pray that restrictions would be lifted, 
We pray that we would be able to gather again. We pray for those efforts, Lord, to resist these restrictions. And we pray for their success. But we also pray that we would learn the lessons you would have us learn in this pandemic. Grow from it. Serve one another. And bring glory to your name. Help us, Lord, not to delay Christian service. Not to delay or postpone our Christian duty for a better season, for a more convenient time, but to serve you now. Amen.